Hello, welcome to Exponential. My name is Dustin White. To those of you joining, we'd just like to welcome you that are joining us in person and also those that are joining online. We invite you to please feel free to leave a comment in the chat box and engage in a message today. So today's message is a part of the series that we've been doing here at Exponential, My One Prayer. So today's topic is one that's going to be, it's a heavy topic. It is a topic that weighs heavy on my heart, and that is the topic of protecting the unborn, those that are vulnerable. This is something that weighs heavy on me because it took about four years of struggle for my wife and I before we had our daughter. And meanwhile, we see that so many others were just carting their children. And this was difficult. So this is what I'd like to share with you today. My one prayer is to protect the unborn and that the church would, would step up and play a role in that. And I know that there may be some that, though maybe in the past, have had either dealings with indirectly or directly with having an abortion. And say, I just want to say that my heart goes out to you. So I'm not here to, to condemn you. We want to show you that there is forgiveness. Jesus came, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he came full of grace and full of truth. There is forgiveness in Christ. But what I want to talk about today is, is how the church needs to step up and, and help those that maybe have been through those types of things. And, and to also to, to educate ourselves and those in the church and outside the church, what, what, it, what it means to be human, what, what a human life is, and, and why human life is unique and special in the sight of God's eyes. So before we begin here today, if you would just join me just as a moment to just pray before we begin this message. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for this time to gather together here this morning as we worship you. I pray, Lord, today that as uh, I share this message I pray, Lord, that my words would be full of grace and full of truth, just as you sent your son, Jesus, who came full of grace and full of truth. May these words not be my own, but, Lord, may they be your words through your Holy Spirit speaking through me. Allow me to, to get out of your way, God, today, and that you would speak truth, and that your truth would prevail, your grace would prevail, your love would prevail. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what the culture is saying today about this issue. You've probably heard these types of things. My body, my choice. Women's right to choose. Reproductive health care. Women's rights. And protection for women. Now who is not for those things? I'm, I'm for those things. I'm absolutely in favor of a woman being able to have autonomy over her body. I'm, I'm in favor of, of the reproductive health care, women's rights, protection for women. But the, pro the thing is that these phrases have been hijacked. It's been redefined in a way to, as a way to justify what is happening. I, I don't need to stand up here today and give a message about how my one prayer is that people would come to the realization that murder is wrong because I don't think that anybody would say 
that murder is a moral virtue. Nobody would say that. It's, a, it's an objective morality. We all know it's written in our hearts. We all know that that's wrong. The thing is, is that we're taking what is evil and we're making it into something that is actually good. The Bible actually speaks on this in Isaiah 5.20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Essentially, this is what we're seeing in our culture today. We're taking something that is actually an evil and we're actually making it a good thing. It's a reversal. It's really a deception. And many are deceived because, as I said, I don't think anybody here would say murder is a good thing. But it's redefining terms. It's saying one thing but actually meaning another to, to bring, just, to bring, to, or to bring a, a justification to what is actually taking place in order to justify our behavior. So this type of thing is actually not a recent thing in history. This actually goes back, way back in history. You can find this type of thing going on in, in the Bible, in fact. In 2 Kings 16, 1-4, it reads, In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramaliah, Ahaz... Son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites." He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. 2 Kings 16, here we see that King Ahaz sacrificed his own son to another god. And then we have in 2 Kings 21, Manasseh says when Manasseh was 12 years old, when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years, his mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So Manasseh as well did this. And so even the kings of Israel were engaging in child sacrifice way, way back. Well, what did God have to say about this? Well, if we look back in Leviticus 20, verse 1 to 5, God actually, ahead of time, before these events even took place, spoke about the detestable practice of sacrificing our children. So if you're wondering what this has to do with what we're talking today, we'll get to that in a second. But the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. 
the members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people, for by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him in prostituting themselves to Molech. And so here we see God is commanding Israel not to sacrifice their children to these pagan gods. And he's saying that even if somebody looks on and, and sees it happening and does nothing, he says he commands them not to do that as well. This is God's command. And so we look at this and say, well, we don't do that today. We don't sacrifice our children to Molech or Baal or anything like that. And a lot of times people say, we, we, don't, we, don't, do, we don't engage in idolatry today. Well, essentially, we are created as beings that are wired to worship something. We're all created that way. The question is, what are we going to worship? It's going to be one of two things. It's going to be either the creator who made us, or it's going to be some aspect of the creation. Those are the only two things we can, we can worship. And so while today many may not actually worship these gods or worship idols, we do have things in our lives that we worship. And in many cases, what we're seeing today is the worshiping the, of the god of self. And so many, many children are sacrificed today, even while in the womb, in the name of self. Because if I have this child, I won't be able to, I won't be able to, to uh, participate in this. I won't be able to achieve my dreams. I won't be able to do this or that. And so many children are cast aside because in the name of what's best for me. And so essentially, we're really we're doing the same thing. The history of abortion in the United States goes back a long time. Early on in our history, abortion laws were passed to ban the practice as early as the 1800s. Then in 1916, Planned Parenthood was founded by Margaret Sanger. By 1967, California and Colorado legalized abortion in cases of incest and rape. In 1970, New York legalized abortion up to 24 weeks. And of course, the one we all know about is 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion in all 50 states. And during 1970, the time period of 1973 to 1979, the annual number of abortions doubled during that time in the, in the United States. Now, through a lot of prayer, that decision has been overturned back last year in 2022, giving the issue back to the states. And so now it's, so many people think, well, that, that ends abortion, that ends the, the issue right now, but it doesn't because now it's back in the hands of the states. In fact, just as late as this week, Ohio is voting to put an amendment in their constitution that would secure the rights to abortion in the state of Ohio. So this goes back in our history a long way. During that time since, from 1973, more than 63 million babies were aborted. And for every 
white baby that was aborted, five black babies were aborted. It says 86% of all abortions in 2020 were from unmarried women as opposed to 4% of married women. And here's something that we should take note of as the church. In 2014, it says that 30% in that year, 30% of aborting women identified as Protestant. Maybe that shows us that maybe the church needs to step up a little more in educating what human life is and what is actually taking place when we, when we engage in these types of practices because 30% of women were involved in aborting a child in that year. Another sad statistic is that the average cost of abortion is $504. That's it. Think about any other kind of medical procedures and how expensive they can be. Many of them not covered by insurance. Many infertility treatments are not covered by insurances, but many insurances will actually cover today the cost of an abortion, making it easy to have access to killing the unborn in the womb. For most of the years from 2000 up until 2021, it was around a million babies a year that were aborted. And these, these statistics are all according to an online ministry called abort73.com. If you want to look at those stats, there's, there's a lot of stats on there about these types of things. Here are some of the reasons why abortions happen. A lot of arguments are made about abortions be, having to happen because of rape. Actually, less than one-half of a percent of abortions actually happen because of rape. 3% because of fetal health problems. 4% because of physical health problems. 4% say because it would interfere with their education or career. 7% say it's not mature, they're not mature enough to raise a child. 8% don't want to be a single mother. 19% just simply say they're done having children. 23% say they can't afford a baby. 25% say they're not ready for a child. So these are some of the top reasons that we get. So those are some of the stats that we can look at, kind of just to give you an overview. What, what is the issue today? What, what are some of the things that are going on in regards to this issue? But I think so, so many times we get bogged down in these debates about it. And I think that it really comes down, the, the debate is really simple. It comes down to this one simple question and finding the answer to this one simple question. And this one simple question is that we have to ask ourselves, is a fetus a human life? That's the question. Is a fetus a human life? Because if it is, then aborting the fetus in the womb is a clear violation of the sixth commandment, which is, you shall not murder. And again, I don't have to stand up here and convince anybody, I don't believe that, that murder is wrong. We all know that murder is wrong, but I think the question comes down to, to what is human life? What, what is, how does God view human life? When does human life begin? And I think that's, that's where the question comes. And so this is what my, this is what my prayer about, is about, my one prayer. And so as we go through this message today, these are all going to be kind of prayers that kind of are all geared towards this one big prayer, that my prayer is that the, the unborn will be protected in the womb, because obviously... I believe that scripture and science tells us that that, that is human life. And we're going to look and see today what scripture says about what, how does God view human life. And so each, each of these points here today are going to be geared towards that one main prayer. But the first prayer that gears towards that one main prayer is, is that my prayer is that human life 
would be valued. My prayer is that human life would be valued because I don't think sometimes in many cases human life even outside the womb is valued the way it should be. Let's see what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says. We go back to the very beginning. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We see here right from the beginning when God creates mankind, he makes them, male and female, in the image of God. That gives us a special place in God's creation. We are the image bearers of God. We're created to rule alongside him over the earth, over the livestock, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. We're given this special role, and so we have this special inherent value as human beings. All human beings have this, this inherent worth, this inherent value that's in us. And I don't think many times we, we don't look at humans like that. If somebody insults me or somebody does something that's inconvenient to me or something, you know, sometimes we, it's very easy for me to, to dehumanize that person and say, well, you know, they're not deserving of my grace. They're not deserving of my love. They're not deserving of God's love or whatever. But, well, what does scripture say about that? Well, Genesis 9 says this in verse 4 through 6, but you must not eat the meat that has lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Essentially, what we're seeing here from Genesis 9 is that an attack on human life is essentially an attack on God. Because when you attack a human being, whether it's verbally, whether you attack a human being physically, you're, you're, you're attacking God an image bearer of God, and essentially what you're doing is you're attacking God himself. God considers that as an attack on him. And so obviously what we see is that God definitely values human life. As followers of Jesus, we should value human life as well. Absolutely. We have to value human life. Next point is that my prayer is then that looking at the value of human life, that also we would value Children, that children would be valued as God values children. I think today the value of children is not seen as something important. Children are very special. They're very much a blessing. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, in the very beginning, God gave mankind, male and female, he gave this command, he said, to, to have offspring and to fill the earth. We're commanded to have children. But does that mean that if you can't have children that your value is less or you're not obeying God? And absolutely not, I'm not saying that. Many people struggle with that. But that's, that's how God, that's why one of the purposes, what's one of the primary reasons God created marriage is so that Man and woman could come together, they could procreate, and they could fill the earth and populate the earth and subdue the earth. And so having children is actually God's command. It's a good thing. 
It's not, as a, it's not a negative thing that the way that the culture would have us think today. I really, I really love what Psalms 127 says. It says in verse 3 through 5, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring, a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they counted with their opponents or when they contend with their opponents in court. Children are a blessing from God. I know this to be true. I've experienced the blessing of children in my own life. And what a, what a great and wonderful gift that they are from God. Does it make, does it make things hard sometimes? Yeah. You might, you might feel a little more tired, moms and dads. You might feel a little more exhausted than maybe you did before having children. But you know what? It's all worth it because they're a blessing. The blessings far outweigh anything else. They have children in your life. I can attest to that. And so, Jesus says in Matthew 19, it says in Matthew 19, then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he placed his hands on him, when he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Clearly here we see Jesus does not consider children to be a burden. His disciples, they, they thought, oh, the children are a burden. Get them away. They're, they're a hindrance. And Jesus said, no, the, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so who are we to disagree with Jesus? If we're Christians, to be a Christian, it means you're a Christ follower. We follow Christ. How am I then going to disagree with what Jesus says and go my own way if I'm going to count myself as his follower, as his student? Jesus considers children to be a blessing. I consider children to be a blessing. So human life, that human life will be valued. That's my big prayer. My other big prayer is that, that it will be widely understood that life begins at conception. Because this is going back to that original question that I posed this morning. When does life begin? Is a human fetus, is that human life? Because if, if it is, then we can put whatever label on it we want. We can put whatever label on abortion we want. We can say, my body, my choice, pro-choice. We can put any label we want on that. But what it comes down to is if, is if that, that is a human life created in the image of God from the time of conception, then that would clearly be a violation of the, ten, or the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder. And I think that scripture and science Scripture and science, yes. We can, you know, they say, well, science and faith can't mix, right? Well, no, scripture and science shows us what, what the truth is about that. I'm going to start with scripture. We're going to look at some verses here, and we're going to see what does scripture say about the status of the unborn. Beginning in Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. We see the Lord is speaking here to the prophet Jeremiah, and God is, is telling Jeremiah that even before he was born, he, has a perp, he had a purpose for him. The principle we can take from this is that, that God has a purpose for children even when they're in the womb. 
God doesn't just look at them as a, a clump of cells or tissue. God is saying, no, I formed you in the womb. I knew you before you were born. I had a plan for you before you were born. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says this, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139 here clearly is teaching that God is the one that forms us while we are yet inside of our mother's womb. He, he knits us together. It's a really, God's a really, he's a hands-on God. He, he is intimately involved in, in our creation and, and knitting us together in our innermost being when we are in the womb. This doesn't sound like what the Bible is saying. It doesn't sound like it's saying that that's just a clump of cells that just come by through natural processes. No, this is the God of the universe intended for you to exist. He intended for you to be born. He, he actually crafted each and every one of you together, cell by cell. Psalm 51 then, uh, 5 to 6, says this, and this is in reference to, to David. David is writing this psalm here. David is speaking, he's, he's repenting after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So notice here that David says, I was sinful at birth, but then he also says, sinful from the time my mother conceived me even the time in the womb. So I'd ask the question then, if, if David said that he sinned even from the time that he was conceived, the question is, can a clump of cells or tissues commit sin? Or can only a person commit sin? It's clearly something that is indicating personhood here. And the principle that we can draw from that is that it says that we are persons even in the womb. Even at that time, we are persons from that time. And then we go to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, after Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who is in her sixth month, after she gets the announcement from the angel Gabriel that she is going to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And she is to give birth to a Savior, and he is to be called the name Jesus. She goes to her relative Elizabeth, who the angel told her, She's in her sixth month. And it says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. We see that here that as soon as Mary comes to greet her relative Elizabeth, that the child that is in Elizabeth's womb, which is 
is the child that God had planned to be the prophet, John, as we know, John the Baptist, says, John leaped for joy inside of his mother's womb. Leap for joy. My question would be, how can a clump of cells inside of a womb leap for joy? Clearly, the Bible is indicating that John the Baptist already at that point was a person. It says he was, even, he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from the time he was conceived. Clearly, the scripture is indicating that from the time we were conceived, as we're being knit together by God in the womb, we are persons. We are human beings. We are created in the image of God. And so what does science say? This is what science says. As soon as a child is conceived, as soon as a cell from the mother and a cell from the father come together, immediately that new embryo that is created has already has its own unique genetic code, distinct from the mother and distinct from the father. I know the argument a lot of times is my body, my choice. The only issue with that, though, is that it, it, is, it is not your body. It is a unique body that is distinct from our own, from, is distinct from the father, distinct from the mother, with its own unique genetic code. In the case of a fetus that has XY chromosomes, the fetus is not even the same sex as the mother. And the scientific consensus is, if you actually look, at what's the scientific consensus? Is that a fetus, a fetus is a human except when it is convenient for the discarding of human life. Did you ever notice that? Of course it's considered wrong to cause a, a murdering of a, of a human in the, in the womb. Uh, of course it's, it's seen as, as wrong, except when it's that person's choice that they want to discard the child. Because science is even saying that. It's own unique genetic code from the start. And also, all genetic information that is present, it's already present. As soon as the child is conceived, all genetic information is already there that's going to determine the sex of the child, the hair color of the child, the eye color, the height, and any other physical attributes that's already present from the time of conception. Very clearly, this is a, a unique, separate being, a separate person from the parents right from the get-go. So let me just take you through a little journey here through, through the, the process of, of, of the development of the child, and, and we can look and see what begins to take place at each, at each marker. So at, at implantation, this is about eight days after conception, it says at this point, there's a, it's called a blastocyst. It emits a chemical which then weakens the mother's immune system. Why, why would it do that? It, well, because the mother's immune system recognizes this blastocyst as a foreign object in the body. The, 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 mother sa the mother's body says, this is, this is not a part of my body, so therefore the, the immune system actually has to kick in to expel the blastocyst from the body. If this was a part of the mother's body, then the mother's body wouldn't reject it because it's not a part of the mother's body. The mother's body is initially rejecting it. That's why the blastocyst has to emit this chemical. God designed it that way, to emit this chemical that would weaken the mother's immune system to allow the blastocyst to implant. And already the body uh, shape begins to take form at this time. Then we, we fast forward to three weeks from fertilization. Three weeks from fertilization. I think this is normally the time that 
doctors will say to mothers, they're probably about, they'll say about five weeks along, but this is actually about three weeks after fertilization. This is usually when a, when a, when a woman initially finds out that she's pregnant about this time. And so already, by the time the woman finds out that she is pregnant, the child already has a heartbeat, the eyes are already beginning to develop, the brain is already beginning to develop, and already we have arms and legs taking shape. Four weeks from fertilization, the brain size increases by 25%. Feet begin to take shape, the retinas of the eyes, they begin to gain pigment, and the nose starts to elevate. Five weeks from fertilization, the child doubles in size from, the, from five millimeters to 10 millimeters, and already external portions of the ear begin to form, and the internal organs known as the kidneys begin to appear. And we go on to six weeks, measurable brain impulses, small body movements, responses to pain and stimuli. Their lips begin to appear, teeth buds appear in the gums. I'll never forget seeing my daughter for the first time moving inside my wife's womb and how amazing that was and seeing that. You know, there's a, a, a ministry called Preborn, and I think the stat there that says that uh, it's a preborn ministry that helps women, that get, gets them ultrasounds, and it says 80% of women are, that are considering abortion, that as soon as they see their child in ultrasound, 80% of them decide not to go through with it because they come to their realization that this is a human, this is a person in here. How could I discard this person, which is my own flesh and blood, which is my own child? Seven weeks then from fertilization, we start to see that hiccups start to begin in the child. Ch children are already hiccuping. The, if it's a female, their ovaries already start to develop. A four-chambered heart is completed. Fingers and toes separated. They're no longer webbed. Knee joints are present, and they already have the sense of smell. At eight weeks, there's a transition from, at this point, it was a, an embryo. Now we say, okay, this, at this point, it's called a fetus. And the fetus then already begins to show a dominant hand preference. There's intermittent breathing motions, even though they're not breathing yet because they're in the amniotic fluid. And at this time, if it's a male, their male reproductive organs begin to show up as well. At nine weeks, the eyelids form and they're closed. They may start to suck their thumb. They may start to grasp objects. They respond to touch. They respond to stimuli. And they might start to move around a lot more by doing backwards and forwards somersaults. 10 weeks is an increase in body weight by 75% from week nine. Fingernails, toenails appear, and they already have a unique fingerprint. At 16 weeks, the fetus is now large enough for mother to feel the kicks, and the eyelids are completely covering the eyes, and fine hairs are all over the body. And then at 22 weeks, at 22 weeks, this is what's considered the first viability outside the womb. And of course, in many cases, you can abort a child well after this point, even though at this point a child could actually live outside the womb. And so as I said, was, you know, mothers that see their children in the womb in this way, most of them realize that is a person. I can't, I can't discard that. And so my next thing is, my next point is my prayer is that abortion would be understood for what it is. Because abortions are, are presented as this kind of benign type of procedure. But actually what's happening 
is, is something far sinister. Most abortions are performed surgically by vacuuming the embryo or fetus out of the uterus. Later term procedures use surgical instruments that will, ma will manually dismember the fetus. I've, I've actually seen the footage of this. There, there is footage available online and it brought me to tears. It just, it just completely gutted me when I saw the footage of, of how this is done and the aftermath and the photographs of what has taken place, the dismembered bodies of a fetus. It just, it just breaks my heart. And, that, and that's the thing, that's, that that's not told to many people. And many are, many are de deceived into thinking that it's one thing and it's actually another. This is the dismembering, ripping limb from limb a child, a fetus, that is a human being that is created uniquely and wonderfully and fearfully in the image of God, and yet they're just discarded as if they're trash. Some medical abortions like RU486 are a two-step procedure, which includes one drug that compromises the uterus so that the embryo starves and dies, and the second drug initiates uterine contractions to expel the dead body. So depending on the stage of the pregnancy is the type of procedure that they will do. There are some contraceptives that also may, a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of contraceptives that can cause abortion. Oral contraceptives that deliver hormones orally through a daily pill that prevents ovulation but thickens the mucus lining so to prevent fertilization and thins the lining of the uterus which may prevent implantation if fertilization does occur. So if we believe that, that life begins at conception and some of these Oral contraceptives are actually keeping that life from implanting. Essentially, that could potentially, could potentially cut off the life of that human being. And then emergency contraceptives, such as the morning-after pill, will deliver hormones orally through a high-dosage pill that prevents ovulation, thickens the mucus lining so as to prevent fertilization, and thins the lining of the uterus, which may prevent implantation if fertilization does occur. The estimated failure rate of this is 1%. So these are the types of things that, that take place that are preventing human life from continuing to thrive and to flourish inside the womb. And it, it is just something that weighs, weighs heavily, heavily on my heart. And so what my prayer is, is that my prayer is that the, the church would use godly wisdom and discernment in navigating these difficult scenarios. Because as I said, there are very difficult circumstances. Sometimes it's always not clear, cut, cut and dry, good and evil, right? There's, there's different nuances that we have to navigate through as a church. It's easy to say up here, you know, that, that's a human being, that's a human life. Aborting a pregnancy would be murder, right? But there's, there's also discernment, there's also, there's also healing, there's also offering forgiveness, there's also offering mercy and grace to those who have maybe directly or indirectly been involved in the procedure of abortion. And, and my prayer is that the church would step up and, and would use godly wisdom, praying that God would give us as a church wisdom to navigate these difficult scenarios, because it is difficult, very difficult. The question that gets asked to me all the time on this is, okay, what about cases of rape? Should, should 
I then be forced to keep the child if, if I was raped? That's the question I get a lot. And so this is, this is one that we have to, to navigate through. And I would say that there are some things that we can take into account to consider in these cases. Obviously, rape is a very heinous crime. And it hurts my heart to think that, that some people have, have, there's so many people that have gone through such a horrendous, I can't even imagine going through such a, a horrendous event or a horrific, traumatic event in their life. But the one thing that we have to keep in mind, though, is that it comes back to that simple question. And the question, again, is, okay, is that fetus that's inside the womb a human being? Is that child a is that child an image bearer of God? Because then if it does, if it is, we say, okay, well, the child inside it is still a human being. And so crimes against us never justifies committing a crime against an innocent third party. You know, if a crime was committed against me, I, you know, if, something, if somebody broke into my home or, or stole something from me or, or injured me, that, that would not give me the right to go to a third party, someone else not even involved, and say, I'm going to harm you in, in some way. These children didn't ask for to be in the situation that they're in. And so, are we going to discard them just because of something evil that's been wrong about us? I understand that, that some look at that and say, well, this child is just always going to remind me of what happened to me. There, there are other options. There, are, there, is there is adoption and things like that. But these are very, very difficult situations to navigate through. And we pray for godly wisdom to deal with them as we go through them. Another question is, what about ectopic pregnancies? And ectopic pregnancy is when the, the blastocyst, the, the embryo, begins to plant in the fallopian tube. And, and this is a very, very dangerous condition. And so what, what do we do with that? Because basically you have two options in this case. The one option is you, you allow the child to continue to develop, but then what's going to happen is the mother is definitely going to die. And so is the child. But if you remove the child from the fallopian tube, the mother can live, but obviously the, the child's not going to, to live. So there is currently at this point no medical technology to save the baby. And so that, that leaves us with the choice. Do we save just the mother or do we let both die? Th those are really the only options with our current technology. So many would go to say, well, it's better to save one life than none. But obviously, if in the future it becomes possible to, to somehow transfer the fetus to the uterus, then, then we would obviously want to do so. And so these are very, very difficult, nuanced situations that we are faced with as a church, and we pray for godly wisdom in discerning and working through those. And so finally, my prayer is that then that the church will step up and fight for the unborn. That's my prayer. So that to conclude this, it's, the idea is it's that scripture as well as science and common sense support that the fact that life begins at conception. The unborn are human beings that are created in the image of God and have the right to live. And electing to end the life of an unborn child is murder, and it is an attack on our creator. And so as a church, my prayer is that we would know how to respond and that we would step up to protect that life and to navigate these difficult scenarios. So what do we do as a church? Number one is the church needs to teach God's word on the issue. We can't shy away from this topic and say, well, this is a divisive topic or this is a political topic. Well, today, in today's world, everything is becoming political. 
But that doesn't mean we can't stand up for truth. And of course, that doesn't mean we can't show grace and forgiveness and love. But it also means we, we still have to stand to the truth and teach God's word on the issue. The church needs to do that more and educate the followers of Christ. Also, the life of the unborn child, as well as the mother, must be respected and protected. We're not saying here that we don't respect women or women's uh, autonomy of their body or their, their choices, what to do, but we are saying that we also respect the life of that child because that is a human being and we want to protect that. And as I said, I don't think any mother goes into it saying, I would like to murder my child. I don't think any mother says that. And I think many, many young mothers are actually deceived into thinking it's really not what it is. Many are deceived to say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just, it's just a fetus. It's not really a person. You're not really discarding a person. But we want to respect the life of the mother and the child and educate young people on this as well. Also, teaching church members that life begins at conception. We need to, to, uh, to encourage one another and teach one another, admonish one another that, that life begins at, at conception. As we looked at from Scripture, that seems to be the case from what Scripture is saying and from what science is saying. Also, to assist parents in finding homes for unwanted children because that is another option. There is the option of adopting or, or giving up a child for adoption. There are many parents out there that would love to adopt. God often talks, times talks about how he cares for the, the orphans and the widows. And, and so we too, as followers of Christ, should care for the orphans and the widows and find homes, loving homes, caring homes for children that have no home. Because that, that is a much better option. They can then have a life. They can live their life. They can grow up, and, and God can use them and work through them and however he finds to work through them. So assisting children, finding homes, and also the big one is offering forgiveness to all who confess their sin. If you've ever been involved in this, as I said, directly or indirectly, know that God still loves you. Jesus came into this world, and he didn't come into, and John 17 says, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. We're all standing condemned under God's wrath. The only hope that we all have is that we put our faith and our trust, and we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, that we could be saved. And in Christ, there is mercy, there is grace, there is forgiveness, and there is healing. And so the church, we need to come alongside those who have maybe had that in their past and, 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 and help them through the, the, the hurt and the pain of the past that, that, that have gone through. And so the church also needs to offer solutions in teaching the church about sexuality. Obviously, God's design for sexuality is, is, is a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage. So I wonder you see that when we step outside of the lines, all the hurt, all the pain, all the, the things that can come from that because, well, God designed it this way. And, and when we step outside of that, well, we can see the consequences of that. So like having a fire, it's a good thing in the fireplace. But if the fire comes outside the fireplace, it burns the whole house down. And so educating the church about, about sexuality, because sex is a good thing, but it has to be done according to God's plan, according to God's design. We're teaching about, as I said, the alternatives of adoption. 
or the alternatives of perhaps actually keeping the child and raising the child anyway. Children are a blessing, regardless of how they got here. Just because a person came into existence through the actions, the sinful actions of a mother and a father does not mean that they're not still here by God's design. Doesn't mean that that they're not still a human being created in the image of God. That's the way that it needs to be looked at. Keep the child and raise the child anyway as an alternative option. What the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. And nobody's here by accident. It's exactly the way God intended it. So this is my one prayer, that the church would step up and protect and stand up for the rights of the unborn and the vulnerable. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, thank you again for what your word tells us. We thank you, God, for your love and your mercy and grace. We just pray, Lord, that uh, we as a church would be able to navigate this issue with grace and with truth to teach what the Bible says about it, to teach that, that human life does begin from the time that we are conceived and that we as a church would stand up for the rights to protect the life of the unborn. But that, Lord, we would also show grace and mercy and forgiveness as you do to those who have sinned because we have all sinned and we all deserve your wrath, but we know that you offer us instead your grace if we believe in you. So, Father, my one prayer today is that the life of the unborn would continue to be protect, protected, that the church would step up and, and, and look to protect that life. And we ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.